Marco! Paul, catch it! Mark, hey! Catch it! Hey! Wow, how have you been, My guy! Wow, so much has happened since we last recorded. Yeah, do you want to give them a little recap? Yeah, I mean, in December, I got to go to El Paso with my students. (laughs) Dang, that's so incredible. I put my clothes in the dryer? You know, yeah, I mean, just last week, I got to speak uh, with President Tom Chaboya at a luncheon. It was oh, really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember Tom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I made a couple copies in the printer today. Uh, that's really awesome, Patrick. Yeah, you know, you invited me to an open mic, and I got to play my saxophone at it the other night, and that was really fun in southwest Detroit. That's right, that's right. Yeah, I don't, yeah, it's because I don't, um, yeah, I don't play any um, in- instruments. Um. It's all right, bud. Yeah, 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 I got my uh, beard airbrushed. Wait, Pat, there's more you've done than get your beard airbrushed. You're right. Billy, I, I got, I did get a new toothbrush. Oh, wow, Pat, what kind? Oral-B. Now, while we're on the topic of all things Freaky Fresh, Freaky Fresh. our guest and man of the hour is Raul Echevarria. Raul, with an accent over the U, is from Humble Park, Chicago. Raul, and you will know this, listeners, is a man who thinks very deeply and speaks from the heart. It's one of the qualities I admire most about him. His heart is so big, and he centers himself in his identities as a Puerto Rican, as a man of faith, and as a community developer, and as a father. It was a privilege to talk to him and for him to take the time to come out to us and answer a couple of questions. He was one of the first people I wanted to be on the podcast. And like I said, I can't stress enough. He thinks deeply, uh, but I guarantee you will take so much away from his words and you will see his heart. So I am personally very excited for you all to hear what he has to say. You know what, Patrick, let's, let's get right into it. So we're joined with Raul today, uh, coming from Urban Neighborhood Initiatives. He is also a adjunct professor at University of Detroit Mercy. Raul, thank you so much for joining Billy and I. Thanks for having me. We want to jump in to talking about Southwest Detroit. Uh, Billy and I, along with four other of our housemates, live in Southwest Detroit. I have the privilege of working and living in Southwest Detroit, and as well as Will working at uh, Crystal Ray. Mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with uh, what's going on in the neighborhood, the news, and, and, and our organization in particular has been at the forefront of uh, neighborhood development and uh, helping advance resident voice. So Raul, I'll begin with what brought you to Southwest Detroit? First and foremost, I want to preface everything that I say uh, by making clear that I was born and raised in Chicago. Uh, I've been in the Southeast Michigan area for seven years almost this June, and I don't live in Detroit proper. And so all of those are limitations to what I can say or um, how much weight my observations um, have and play. There's no substitution for people who live and experience the issues daily. Um, I have a small window of, of 
uh, of uh, observation of what Southwest Detroit is like, both when I'm, when I'm in town working um, at Urban Area Initiatives and, and, and also when I'm, when I'm in town socially and, and building relationships. And so I just, that, that's part of my ethos is understanding my location and, and being clear uh, whenever I'm asked to speak about anything having to do with Detroit and acknowledging all of those limitations. So what brought me to doing work in Detroit was really uh, a chance encounter um, in 2012, my pastor in Chicago, Pastor Pedro Windsor Garcia, um, was asked by the Presbytery of Detroit, that's PCUSA um, denomination, to come into town and do some observations of some work that was started in Southwest Detroit. The Latino minister that had started that work was relocating to San Antonio, um, and the Presbytery was trying to determine whether to keep the work going and, and hire a new, a new minister or to fold up shop and call it a day, given that the Presbytery has had limited experience in planting churches or planting ministries, um, let alone doing work in, in a Latino urban context, uh, they felt they needed some, some assistance. Now, the way that the offer was made to my pastor to come in and help had to do with the fact that the executive presbyter at the time, Al Tim, um, had done his uh, doctoral ministry uh, uh, schooling um, with my pastor. They were in the same cohort at McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago. And my pastor's um, uh, thesis of the time was doing Latino ministry in urban context. And so, Al was already familiar of Pastor Windsor's work um, in Chicago, and so as Executive Presbyter, says, I know a guy, you should invite him in. This is Al talking to the New Church Development Committee. Um, and then I came as an attache, as a, <laughs> as a hanger on, as a protege. As for me, my part or my role in the trip was just one of many trips that I've done with my pastor over the years. I was, I'd been a member for over 16 years at that congregation. And, and as a pastor in training, my, my pastor, as part of his leadership development and mentoring, would often invite me to trips and I often sh chauffeured him um, as part of my uh, apprenticeship. Um, and so that's all, that's, that's exactly how I treated my uh, first time in Detroit was, as a matter of fact, I was the one driving. It was me, Pastor Windsor, and a deacon from the church. And so um, I didn't expect how the experience would tug at my heart and my spirit. Um, I had no inclination about doing anything outside of Chicago or even Humboldt Park, which is where I was born and raised. Puerto Rican community in Chicago, uh, but I had a lot of memory um, recollection as I walked through the neighborhood of Southwest Detroit, 
it felt like home. It felt mm. like the humble part that I grew up in. Um, and as folks were asking us questions, it was almost as if they were interviewing me and, and, and the deacon, uh, um, which I found really weird. I felt like the pastor had set us up. Said um, he, he swears up and down he didn't set us up. But <laughs> the kinds of questions that they were asking us um, was like really fishy. Like, so how do you like it? Would you do you think you could move out here? Like, just weird odd questions for two people who were just hanging on. You know? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and so what I didn't account for was 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 where I was at uh, mentally and spiritually. I had already left my full time job in Chicago. I resigned as deputy director of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center based on this urgent sense of call from God to, pro, to move forward in my own theological studies and my own training as a pastor. And, um, and so I said, okay, God, you know, I'm creating space to do that and to enter into that. So I did a year, almost a year prior to that trip. So I was already in a place emotionally, psychologically, where I was saying, okay, God, show me. And so I think that, the, that that's what I came in with, right? That's what, that's, that's what I brought with me on the trip to Detroit was this openness um, to call. And, um, and I think I, you know, I felt like I felt a deep sense of home. And so um, eventually I would interview for, I would do a Skype interview for the minister's position and then it would be hired. And that began my journey in southwest Detroit, I was commuting every other week for four weeks, for a few months, and then we decided to relocate. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, just kind of, it's inspiring for me to hear you talk about like your call from God and how that has brought you to southwest Detroit. And I wonder if you can speak to, you know, now living here, working at Urban Neighborhood Initiatives and being uh, just part-time teaching at Detroit Mercy, like, I wonder if you could point out some places, like where do you see God in your current work and where do you kind of encounter, like, do you still feel called? Do you feel kind of content where you are? Or if you can kind of speak to like where you are at in that journey. So that was when I, when we, when my family and I decided to relocate in 2013, we, we struggled, we struggled collectively to sort of say, is this the best move for us? Mm. Because I didn't want to be that guy who uprooted his family mm -hmm. because God had called him to be a pastor. Mm -hmm. like, sure. I had been really critical of, of, of that and I had seen sort of the harmful effects um, uh, on families and households sort of through this uh, male-dominated process of, of being called to be a pastor or a minister. And so I said, I didn't want that. So we have to feel like we were being called, right? Mm. And, and, and to take it a step further, it wasn't sufficient that, that the presbytery was calling. It had to be God, because it, what was clear to me when I was traveling back and forth was the presbytery didn't have a full grasp of what it wanted from me sure. or what it wanted out of the ministry. Every opportunity that I had to ask for guidance and, and sort of like expectations it was projected back on me and said, we don't know, that's what we're counting on you to help define. Mm. And so that left me somewhat um, suspicious, not, not, not of any 
negative um, connotation, but but like suspicious that that I couldn't put my faith and trust in a group that really didn't know what it wanted. That if we we're going to do this move, it had to be God that was calling us. So that um, if the thing fell through, <laughs> like mm -hmm. if it was God that was doing the calling, then you you know you figure out what the next step is. Yeah. But if you're called, if you feel like you're called by an institution. And then that institution falls through, and you're uprooted. Then you know, then you go back home, or you know, you're sort of left um, without a sense of purpose. When we made that decision, it was clear to us that God was calling us, and not just me. My daughter had just graduated middle school, was transitioning to high school. My wife wanted to transition from being an office administrator at a Christian school to doing more nursing, um, and she had researched. Uh, a training program not too far from where I had been staying, which was in Lyon, not a small city down there, southwest Detroit. And the school of that geographic area in Wyandotte High School there, we were able to visit. I was able, I had, I had met the principal, the assistant principal in my travels back and forth. Mm. And then I reached out and said, hey, could you give us a tour? You know, we're thinking of relocating. The assistant principal came down and gave us a tour um, during spring break, and so and, and we we like so so things felt we we had this sense of like collectively God was calling us. Mm -hmm. um, that work with the Presbytery has since ended. The contract work mm. um, ended about a year ago or so, maybe sure. closer to two years. This part of my life's journey is still in Southwest Detroit. Um, mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, my last, my most recent trip to Chicago, um, both my pastor and my political mentor, Jose Lopez, who was my, my, he was the executive director of my last full-time job there, both in different moments had asked me what I think about coming back. For whatever reason, <laughs> they thought that they wanted to ask that question. And, and I, I think I answered, surprising to me, very, very confidently that I didn't think that that was hmm. That, that was happening anytime soon. I really do feel a deep sense of commitment to to doing meaningful work out here. Um, and so what that looks like is still being defined or it's constantly sort of morphing, right? Yep. I entered seminary at Ecumenical Theological Seminary in Detroit with this notion of becoming a pastor of a church Certainly not in a traditional sense because I had already been questioning sort of the, tr the traditional paradigm of, of church, um, sort of looking at it through a postmodern lens or you know, um, uh, looking at it through sort of the notion of organic church development. So I had already like some, some sort of inkling that the type of pastor I would be would not necessarily be sort of in the traditional sense. Mm. But even now, more so, or to a greater degree, really wondering, like, what does it mean to be a pastor on the fringe or, or in the margins, mm -hmm. right, outside of denomination? Because I, I just don't feel like, I feel less now than I did when I started in 2016 uh, seminary, that, uh, that a traditional path where you search for a calling to a church is the path for me. And mm. so that leaves me with like wondering what's next or how do I, you know, what am I doing out here? What's the MDiv for when I graduate? Like what, mm -hmm. you know, how do I, how do I utilize it in a meaningful way? 
And I think that that's, that's still being defined and, and shaped. I, mean, I, I really don't know. But I know and I'm comfortable and confident in saying that it's here. It's, mm-hmm. it's, in, it's in Detroit. It's in southwest Detroit. A couple things come to mind. I think just overall, um, hearing you, like I hear so much, I think, of stuff that our house has said of kind of like this openness to um, Southwest, this openness when you talk about and what I want to touch on more specifically, um, just your openness uh, to your your personal journey of what led you to Southwest Detroit. You know, you came in uh, into the seminary, came in in more of like a ministry context. I know from... Uh, just my personal experience working, um, how much you are doing with social justice and with, uh, you know, your work at UNI in advocacy, as you are kind of being more open to like what uh, God is kind of calling you to do with, you know, what am I going to do with this MDiv or like what's, uh, what are these things that God is pulling me to? Do you think right now, uh, working in Southwest Detroit, do you feel like you're leaning away from your faith per se and more toward like social justice? Or do you feel like you're still in a ministry perspective? One of the, one of the things that I learned from my pastor in Chicago was the notion of holistic ministry. Um, and and it, it is the very early form of critiquing church the contemporary church model, which is to say that the social ills, so, so-called, that our urban communities face are not secular. And the spiritual ills that our communities and urban contexts face are not spiritual, that, that they are all the same, that, they, that, that a holistic approach to, this, to the self and the needs of the self should should be embodied by the church. And, and so that, that's countercultural to church, to doing church in this, in this country and in a Western Christian context um, because we've sort, of, uh, we've sort of been conditioned to think about the separation of church and state as an ideal. Um, and by the way, most people don't realize that that, that phraseology doesn't exist in the U.S. Constitution. It's, it's really in a letter that um, Thomas Jefferson writes as the governor of Virginia. And so it's not a constitutional, it's not necessarily a constitutional phrase. But in this country, we're conditioned to sort of believe in the separation of secular and spiritual or religious. And, and what I say to that is that I don't, you know, I don't dichotomize who I am as a person. Um, who, I, don't, I don't say that I have multiple hats and that at one time I'm speaking spiritually mm-hmm. and one, another time I'm speaking secularly. To me, that's, that's borderline dysfunction, right? sort of multiple personalities, right? And like, I can't divide myself into multiple persons. Everywhere I go, everything that I do, I am my whole self and I bring my whole self to the table. 
And so my work on social justice, my work in the nonprofit sector, it's all ministry. Hmm. I don't have to invoke the name of Jesus Christ. I don't have to uh, say a public prayer for it for my work to be ministry because I don't dichotomize between secular and sacred. Mm -hmm. To me, all things can be both sacred and secular. Mm -hmm. And I think that that allows me from a sort of a calling perspective and a journey perspective to be able to make peace with um, the idea that um, justice work is deeply sacred is deeply spiritual work, um, and, and, as, and, and countless theologians have, have written about that, including Walter Brueggemann. And so I think that the church misses that point, the Western church for sure misses that point. And I think um, theology of liberation, particularly as it emerges out of Latin America, but then also a very United States-informed notion of liberation, which is distinct from that of Latin America because the issues are different in Latin America. The political issues are different in Latin America and the, and the challenges that we confront are different. And so we articulate a theology of liberation from a U.S. context. Um, and for me, part of that articulation is, is a, a both and union of sacred and spiritual. And so, the long way to answer your question about where my journey is taking me is that I don't view it as, as is it taking me away from one or the other? I, since I view it as both and, it sort of, it is a, it allows for a very dynamic and creative iteration of what is both social justice work, say in the nonprofit sector, and what is ministry, right? And so it also, allows for more possibilities um, of like post-MDiv utilization of, of that theological training, but also the experience in social justice work and seeing how do we look at this holistically um, and how do we normalize that in community, right? So it's just not in Raul's head, but it's in the people's head, right? right. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate working in ministry too. And like much of my ministry being focused on like advocacy or showing students how like why should we care about these social justice issues like I really appreciate that connection to like faith and justice and that holistic view. But if I can just ask you if you can speak a little bit more on like what you what you mean and what you like uh, believe like with liberation liberation theology and like. Uh, if you feel that like a liberationist view is important for like the future of our church and like why why is that important to you in your work? First, as a way to answer that, I don't necessarily ascribe the liberationist view as 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 important for the church um, as a whole. That is not to say that it isn't, but that's not where I that's not where I begin. Right, I, mm -hmm. I begin with who I am and how I identify. I'm a Puerto Rican, uh, born and raised in Chicago, uh, living all of my life with the exception of a few visits to Puerto Rico at, and as a colonized subject of the United States. Um, Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States by many different names. Um, and so my worldview is informed as a Puerto Rican trying to find liberation from 
that colonial relationship, but also liberation to my mind, my spirituality, my politics, and my theology. And so my liberationist view emanates from me as a Puerto Rican and projects that beginning with Puerto Ricans then in concentric circles, uh, Latino Hispanics, um, and then people of color, and then humanity as a whole, right? And so I don't, I don't know whether that's where the church as a whole needs to be, but that mm -hmm. definitely is where the church that portends to, to serve people like me should be. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so a theology, so for me, a theology of liberations, first and foremost, emanates from the margin, from the margins, not from the centers of power. That is to say that we are on the outside looking towards power and then critiquing that power um, as a way to sort of uh, attain our liberation, right? That the way to liberation does not begin at the center. It does not begin with the dominant point of view. It does not begin with the dominant forms of government. It does not begin with the dominant phil philosophies. Rather, it is a, it is a margins perspective critiquing those things and then saying, how then shall we live? And then finding methodologies and alternatives out of that questioning um, where we actually attained our liberation. And so just to, just this is not a socio-political analysis. It is, but it's not just that. It, mm -hmm. is, a, it is a biblical interpretation um, of the ministry of Jesus as a ministry of the margins, not emanating from Jerusalem, which was the center of power of that time and that place where, where Jesus uh, preached. Mm -hmm. Rather, it was Nazareth and Galilee, and you look at the map and you say, well, that's not in Jerusalem, it's on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's where the peasants live, it's not where the elites live, mm -hmm. it's not where the ruling priests live. Rather, it's where the people who are subjugated by and subjugated to live under this sort of Jerusalem socioeconomic um, system mm -hmm. that oppresses and that, and that, and that maims and that kills and destroys. And so Jesus is ministering from the margins, looking inward toward Jerusalem and saying, you have heard blah, 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 blah. I tell you this, blah, 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 blah. It is a critique of what you have heard and a new analysis or new interpretation of what should be. And so it's that same framework um, that I utilize for a political analysis, a cultural analysis, mm. a philosophical analysis. It's definitely rooted in how I read the Bible. And then, you know, incorporating sort of the theologians of Latin America's understanding of uh, preference for the poor, the preference mm -hmm. for the oppressed, right? Saying, like, if I'm looking for God, the first place I should look is where the oppressed are because surely God is there because God hears the oppressed, the cries of the oppressed, right? And his will is to liberate them. And so if I'm looking for God, I won't look at the centers of power. I will look in the margins and then join myself with them um, and God in God's project of liberation. You mentioned that uh, when you went back to Chicago recently, you said very confidently 
that, or maybe not very confidently, but as confident as you have said in recent times that you want to stay in Southwest. Touching on uh, liberation theology and what we've been talking about with, you know, God is is uh, present uh, in the marginalized and with the oppressed, and he's, it's not at the center of power, the center of institutions. Do you see this? Where I, I want to say, like, where do you see this in Southwest? But do you feel like? Can you touch like specifically maybe in like Southwest where you've uh, felt these these moments of God? Yeah, if I can just add to what just hearing and like how you talked about, you know, Nazareth and Galilee, you know, kind of living under Jerusalem. But just thinking about like Detroit, how, you know, talking about Southwest, but also like Detroit, like with maybe some economic development being seen, you know, in the downtown region, but maybe not in other regions, like if you can speak to that at all in answering that question. Some of the greatest manifestations of God, at least that I have witnessed and observed, have been in the most marginal people groups and where they live and where they work, and where they struggle. Um, and so what does that mean? That means uh, in the undocumented community where people struggle to make a life for themselves and their families undercover. Um, uh, behind closed door, out of fear of being deported, out of a constant sense that that ICE can be anywhere, including your school and your church, and so, and so, some of the greatest iterations of God and and and, and love and humanity, I, I have seen in those in those communities in in the interaction with those with those people groups, um, this question about this question about economic development that has mostly impacted the center of the city, which is to say the downtown and the midtown, um, has not um, impacted positively the people in the neighborhoods. And it speaks it speaks out loud as a critique of a form of economic development that people don't have or people don't want to take the time to unpack. We sort of accept the data and say Detroit is coming back and we refuse to see how foolish even that kind of a statement is. When, when we look outside or when we look in the neighborhoods and we don't see economic um, uh, upliftment we continue to see struggle. We continue to see lack of uh, infrastructure development or lack of city services. It, it makes no sense. It, it, it borders the absurd to think that in light of bankruptcy, bankruptcy being defined as not having sufficient income resources to pay your debt liabilities, in light of sort of flat out saying we don't have enough money, that you would give tax abatements, tax breaks, which is your main source of revenue income to pay your debt liabilities, you're gonna give tax breaks for up to 20 years for new developments, including a pizza stadium, 
it's it's absurd. It's absurd. And, and, and we hear sort of the comeback and we hear economic development and we, we praise all of the new buildings that are coming up. But it's an absurdity. It's 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 based on a mythology that that kind of investment will bring more people in and will solidify a tax base. Despite the fact that there is research out there that stadium-funded um, development, like the new pizza stadium downtown, um, have not ever generated the results that the mythology has touted. Mm -hmm. And so we're all sort of challenged to accept this because it's being said, it's being celebrated, it's being reported on, and the populace, the people living in, in residential areas, are expected to believe the mythology as opposed to believe their, their reality, what they observe, and what they see and feel and touch. And so, you know, for me, thinking about liberation is critiquing that message and critiquing that narrative in a prophetic sense and saying, it's absurd. It's mm -hmm. flat out absurdity. There's nothing else, there's no other way to describe it. Um, and so for people, for, for me, the work that needs to be done is both preventing residents from internalizing the mythology and then asking what can we do, right? What can we do both to um, confront the ruling elites with their mythology and their falsehoods, mm -hmm. but also what can we do as people to build our own sh <laughs> to, to, to support to support one another and to really build community organically without sort of an unhealthy dependence on government or an unhealthy dependence on um, on a system that doesn't have the best interests of the people but only has the best interests of, of corporate America. Mm -hmm. And by the way, listeners, he was going to say, build your own sh**. So just want to make just want to make that clear. Thanks, Patrick. Um, just focusing on JVC in particular, what I've admired about my experience so far is um, coming together, being in community with people of different spiritual backgrounds and practices. There has been lots of conversations, conversations that I wouldn't have had um, with people back home talking about the church and specifically the Catholic Church and what limitations and what institutional injustices the Catholic Church has done. Personally, like I, in college, I wrote my senior thesis for sociology on the Catholic Church on uh, the clerical sex abuse. And we talked about that in the episode early on, but I just want to know, we talked since we've been talking about the economic boom in Detroit. One, there's just so many falsehoods to that. Where is this boom happening? This is not impacting the majority. I think in the Catholic Church, in a lot of ways, like, you know, for example, off the top of my head, like, well, we have a Jesuit Pope. Everything is going to be more progressive and we are going to be a more welcoming church. Yet, we are still seeing so many barriers institutionally that are 
blocking women from taking leadership. We are seeing a church that is grappling with multiple issues, um, you know, talk about like immigration and talking about this and that. So my question is, how do you, how do you remain faithful when you see institutions, you look at our government and how it's um, caused a boom in certain areas of Detroit and not in others, and with maybe your church, with how maybe leadership hasn't been reflective of what you are experiencing. Um, so how do you go about these institutional barriers that can be um, disheartening? I think my sense of hope emanates from my faith in God and not institutions. The institution does not, does not control God. God does not belong to the institution. I don't have a problem um, managing my lack of faith in the institutions. Um, God cannot be boxed in, and we, we try it as human beings, and we, we codify uh, guidelines and, and uh, faith traditions. We create doctrine and we teach and reinforce doctrine, but God cannot be boxed in. My sense of hope is also derived from how I read my tradition, how I read the sacred scriptures. I believe God to be a God of wilderness. He shows up in the wilderness to Moses as a burning bush. God leads the Hebrew people out of Egypt into wilderness. When Jesus begins to embark on his ministry, he's taken to the wilderness to be tempted. There's something magical about living and being outside of civilization, which is to say, in the wilderness. And so we have taken our notion of God who is in the wilderness and we have boxed God in to our institutions. And we said, God, these are the parameters for God and God shall not go outside of these. And my sense of hope is that I don't believe that. My sense of hope is that God can't be boxed in. And if God can't be boxed in, God cannot be limited by the failings of our institutions, including the church. And I think part of like my desire is to help people see this framework or this perspective, not to say that it is uh, absolute or is the only way to see it, it's the way that I see it. And it's the way that I find hopes in these, in these moments um, without hope. Um, God cannot be boxed in, and if God is in the wilderness existing outside of civilization, outside of institutions, then God can be found. God can be found in our neighborhoods. God can be found in the margins. Um, and, and, and God is working in those areas. And so that gives me, that gives me hope because uh, I think if I viewed it according to the mainline, mainstream approach, whether Roman Catholic or whether Protestant, I would lose hope immediately. But I see God clearly in the margins, in the wilderness places. And that's where I try to be. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, I for me, I, I try to have that similar outlook, although it is quite hard. You know, read, see the news, or if, you know, you're go on Facebook 
or social media. I think it's a life practice, you know, to look inward and to have that even perspective that you can't box in God, you can't box in or institutionalize God. God, I believe, um, is in everything. You can't quantify that. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't confront injustices. That doesn't mean that you don't um, demand change of your institutions, right? Mm -hmm. That's not an excuse to disengage. I just want to be clear to anyone listening right. that it isn't sort of like a retreat to uh, the wilderness and create um, your own society. Although I think that's a wonderful project, it has to confront the injustices as well. And so the prophetic task, as I understand it, and here I'm informed a lot by Walter Brueggemann in the prophetic imagination, is to both build God's preferred kingdom or God's preferred community, which doesn't look like our what we know right now. It's a, it's a community centered on justice and compassion. So that has to be built up, but at the same time, injustices have to be confronted. So it is, it is a both confrontation of the rulers and the decision makers and, 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 and demanding justice and equity, but it's also building building it out, building it up despite the injustices. And so it is both um, confrontational and communal. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's sort of our prophetic task is to sort of ask our governments, demand our governments to, to act justly, demand the church to act justly. Let's not forego that, but let's not depend on that. Mm -hmm. Right? And see, I think what you're struggling, what, what I hear you say, what I hear you when you say you're struggling, sort of, is is that we, we still need change, right? It's not enough to, it's not enough for me to have hope in wilderness living. It's also confronting and, and being prophetic, um, even even to the isolation and alienation, um, which is the backside of like confronting power, is that you'd be relegated to the margins, um, whether you wanted to or not. Right. Thank you for clarifying that, because um, that was the struggle. This is for me just my personal, just I think struggle with the Catholic Church at times, um, but. Actually, I think that yeah. Leonardo Boff, Latin American priest and um, theologian of liberation, recently wrote a letter to uh, Pope Francis asking for the or uh, requesting the ordination of women. So mm -hmm. I, I think there's still a prophetic thing happening. Mm -hmm. We may not know it, we may not hear it, but but I just wanted to interject that because yeah. um, that's part of it, right? It's sort of understanding what role do we have, what privileges do we what privileges do we realize that we have and how do we utilize those privileges to sort of demand change, right? And so um, I think that more and more people, right, will begin to do that kind of work. I think that the church is changing. The church is becoming more sub-Atlantic, sub-equator, and more poor, right, because of the socioeconomic imperialistic um, treatment of the sub-Saharan world. Um, 
by North Atlantic peoples, Western Europe and the United States. And so the church is growing south of the equator, but it's also becoming more poor. That's going to be a challenge to the power structures as they depend on, numerically, the vestiges of, of the faith system because more and more people in the U.S. and in Europe are falling from the faith. You're going to have to start responding to sort of where people, where your people are and what their demands are. The question is, do we know that? And are we joining God in that movement um, for change and for justice, right? And, and, including like from the church, right? Um, Latin American churches are growing. Catholic churches are growing by leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. They're not growing in the U.S. They're mm -hmm. not growing in Britain. They're not growing in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and so the church based in Rome ha is going to have to confront, and I think to a certain degree, the election of Pope Francis speaks to that. When the most of your people are coming from Latin America and they're based in Europe still, do we, do we risk ostracizing the fastest growing demo demographic? And self-interest is a... And, and I think the church will soon react to its own self-interest as people begin to demand more and more. And, and, and these people doing the demanding are, are people of color mm -hmm. from sub-Saharan and sub-equator um, countries of origin. What I love about you, Raul, is that you, I mean, I'm, that was just so much of what you were talking about with your hope and with your just, I think just your faith right then. And from just talking with you right now and working with you, you are, you just exemplify living out all of your identities and living and not, you know, boxing or segmenting yourself and what I mean by that is uh, when you talk about bringing your faith and your uh, social justice, these identities that make you up, it, from what I hear and what I know, is that you bring them all together. And you, uh, you have inspired me to you know, have these challenges when I think about my relationship with my church, that I was uncomfortable talking about or thinking about you know what's going on at the border and what does my faith tell me struggling with you know this this gender inequality in particular and so you have just been a role model for me to just to reassess and to not segment but to have these conversations and if and, and to lean into this so i thank you for that um, dearly um, and with that, Billy's going to have our final question for you. Yes, so we, this, this is the last question that we ask all of our guests. And it comes out of a quote from Thomas Merton. Quote, If you want to identify me, ask me not where I live, or what I like to eat, or how I comb my hair, but ask me what I am living for, in detail. Ask me what I think is keeping me from fully living for the thing I want to live for. So Raul, we want to ask you the question, what are you living for? Before I answer that question, I just want to go back to what you said, um, Patrick, um, about me, not willing to take a compliment well, 
I, want I hope it came across. <laughs> it wasn't like... <laughs> it, 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 I mean, it was complimentary, but I like to push against sort of um, attention to me. All that I am and all that I've been able to understand about my world and my life and my journey has been a process. I'm 47 years old. Um, it's been it's been a, it's been a journey in the truest sense. It's been it's been sort of a a path of like learning and 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 questioning and unpacking and and rethinking, reshaping. So so my encouragement to anybody sort of trying to think about how to have their multiple sort of identities out front all the time is to say that it's not it's not an easy thing and it's not a quick thing. It's it's sort of a journey in the truest sense. And so when I talk about journey, I, I'm really evoking Buddhist thinking in sort of the the journey versus the destination. And that the the value is in the journey, not the end point. And, and because I've lived my life as a journey and not trying to get to some place, not trying to get to an end and then sit back and relax and say, I've done it, it has constantly called me to sort of like think and rethink and, and, and try to embody in all of my relations sort of that authentic, that authentic self, that authentic self as exists right at that moment knowing that there's probably going to be more learning and more shifting and more shaping along the line. Um, and I think that it's, it's just encouraging folks to really do that deep work, that deep introspective work, that, that examined life work, um, versus sort of sitting back and thinking, you know, sort of you've arrived at your destination and there's no more work to be done. And so that's just my encouragement to you and sort of others who, who would like to sort of develop similarly um, kind of um, idea of how to be that all the time, right? How to be that authentic self all the time. And I guess that takes me to sort of trying to answer the question um, about what I do. It would be hard for me to tell you what I do this for, what, you know, what keeps me going, what, what, what is this work for? because I'm still in it. And, and, and I, I don't want to name a thing and then say, well, when I get there, then I'm done. This, this thing that I live for is ever-changing, is uh, ever-moving, um, and brings me to new experiences and new opportunities. Um, and that's what I look for, and that's what I, that's what I live for, is sort of, Life, it's, 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 it's living. Being attuned with a God who created me and created the world and being in tune with the rest of the creation. And so my sense of justice emanates from this sense of God the creator and we the creation and, and, and finding sort of multiple points of relationship in them. Mm -hmm. And the world system is constantly trying to separate those multiple points. And so what I live for, I would say social justice, but that's too, that's too limiting a notion in our 
finite minds. My what I live for is, is is to be with God and to be like God, which means it affects how I how I relate with God's creation um, and to see God in everything. Um, you said earlier, Patrick, that you believe that God is in everything. I want to see if that's true. I want to test that, and and that's worth living. Well, thank you so much, Raul, for taking the time out of your day. Um, I speak on behalf of Billy and I, but uh, you fulfilled a dream of mine. <laughs> the podcast. Uh, uh, well, bigger dreams, young man. <laughs> Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've been thinking about gratitude and trying to be grateful for each moment and for each person and I can truly say that I'm really grateful for that uh, hour that we spent with Raul in conversation so I thank you Patrick for really working with him to set that up yeah you know listeners we are back in the swing of things and we have to say it is February now about halfway through February and we only have a little bit less than six months left in the JVC. This year has really flown by faster than we thought it would. But, you know, we're really trying to take time to enjoy every moment I have with our housemates and in my job. And, you know, really trying to let it soak in because we only have a few more months. And so just with that being said, listener, we really appreciate the time you spend with us because we know time is precious. Yeah, I'm also just trying to soak up each moment in my workspace, community life, personally, just really savoring these couple months. As for you, listener, please give us a follow on our social media pages. We did a mailbox segment on one of our episodes. We're looking to continue more traction and more engagement. So if you have a question, if you just want to like learn more about us, you know, feel, give us a follow. We reply. We reply. Yeah, there's no bots. There's no... It's just the two of just us. Just the two of us. Yeah. So we are going to bring this episode to a close in a way that our JV community is really familiar with bringing things to a close. Right, Patrick? You're right. So just to preface, at the end of every business meeting, we close with this standardized prayer that we use at the end of every business meeting. And, you know, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, you might be praying with us. Our business meeting is every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the prayer happens about 10.30 because our meeting's about an hour. So look at your watch and consider you might be in unity with us saying this prayer. With that being said, wherever you are, you know, you have made it this far in the podcast. And I just ask that you kind of take a moment of silence for yourself. Maybe for you that means inner silence. Maybe for you that just means pausing in whatever work you're doing just kind of allow for the words that we're about to say in this prayer to reach you wherever you are at. May you live to see your world fulfilled. May your destiny be for worlds still to come. And may you trust in generations past and yet to be. May your heart be filled with wonder and your words be filled with insight. May songs of praise ever be upon your tongue, and your vision be on a straight path before you. 
May your eyes shine with the light of holy words, and your face reflect the brightness of the heavens. May your lips ever speak wisdom, and your fulfillment be in seeking justice. And may you always yearn to hear the holy words of the holy ancient one of old. We want to thank you for listening to Jesuit Balcony Conversations. We want to be clear that our opinions belong to us. And are not affiliated with the views of the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. <laughs> Give us a like. Bye. <laughs>